Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Federation, and I am joined by our new Education Director, Remel Tenney. Welcome, Remel. Thank you, Maria. I'm so excited to be here and co-host with you. This is my very first time doing a podcast, so this should be interesting, and I'm really looking forward to it. That's wonderful, Remel. Thank you for being with us today. You know, Remel, abortion facilities are supposed to abide by basic health and safety standards, but that is not always the case. Today, we will hear from an organization that keeps a watchful eye on the abortion industry and its violations of the law. But first, Remel has some inspiration to share with us. Remel? So today's inspiration is from a young mom, Maddie Charlson, who chose life for her baby after learning that there is a 40% chance that he may be born with Down syndrome. So live action on their Instagram page recently reshared a video of her son with his little sister, and these were Maddie's words accompanying the video. My son has Down syndrome. It made me wonder what he would be like as a big brother. Turns out he is the most loving, caring, gentle, kind, and empathic big brother. He has truly exceeded my wildest dreams. The video showed Brooks sharing sweet moments with his sister and caring for her when she was a baby. So after watching this, I did a little digging and found her blog where she has a series titled Our Down Syndrome Journey. On it, she writes, at 39 weeks, I went to Children's Mercy Hospital to be induced. After 30 hours of labor, a little man, Brooks, had arrived. I ended up having to have an emergency C-section and wasn't able to see him for about two hours. Once Wyatt showed me a picture that he had taken of Brooks, I instantly knew he had Down syndrome. None of that mattered. He was perfect. The nurses didn't act like anything was wrong. They were sitting there calling him cute while handing him to me. They congratulated me and continued to talk about how cute he was. A few days go by and we get the official diagnosis that he does in fact have Down syndrome. I remember a nurse telling us about how fun these kids are and how they are a blessing from God. But what she said next was what we all needed to hear. It's okay to mourn the loss of a child you thought you'd have. It's okay to be selfish and ask why. It's okay to cry too. Just know that everything will be fine and that God only gives these kids to certain parents. I did ask myself why quite a bit, but not like, why me? It was more like, why did God choose me to have a baby with Down syndrome? What does he want me to do? After 22 days in the NICU, Brooks was discharged and sent home. We couldn't imagine our life without him and couldn't imagine him any other way. He is perfect and he is loved and just like any other baby. After being home with Brooks for about two months now, I know why God chose me to have a baby with Down syndrome. To show the world that Down syndrome isn't a bad thing. It is not something that we should fear. Will it have its challenges? Sure, but what kid won't challenge you? Know that it's not the end of the road, but the beginning to a fun journey. 
There's just so many things I love about this story, and I think everyone should hear this. Uh, first of all, the courage of the couple who said yes, despite knowing that, you know, their baby was going to have Down syndrome. And also, actually, um, uh, before this particular paragraph, she she writes that they were offered a chance to abort the son, and uh, they refused. And uh, then we also have the nurse, you know, stepping in with those kind words, saying, um, it's okay to grieve. It's okay uh, to grieve the loss of a baby you thought you were going to have. So her encouragement to grieve is something that I think we should allow mothers experiencing unexpected pregnancies or difficult prenatal diagnosis uh, rather than pushing them to abort. I think just get, holding space for them in that way is some is is a small little thing that we can do to change and support uh, people who are already experiencing such difficulties. Um, at a time like this, um, I think Maddie's story to me is a perfect reminder of how when a community comes together to support one another, every life can be valued and, and nurtured. Because as Maddie says, Down syndrome isn't a bad thing. It is not something we should feel. Thank you so much, Ramo, for that inspiration. Now I would like to give my legislative update, and this is from a National Right to Life news release. On Thursday, March 2nd, National Right to Life released a white paper in a question and answer format addressing common concerns regarding the Food and Drug Administration's decision to update labeling for mifepristone that would allow pharmacies to dispense the drug. More than two dozen deaths and thousands of complications are associated with the use of the mifepristone, misoprostol chemical abortion method, said Randall O'Bannon, PhD, Director of Education and Research for National Right to Life and author of the white paper. With these safety concerns, it is not surprising that questions have arisen regarding the FDA's decision to allow pharmacies to dispense the abortion drug combination. O'Bannon continued, Thousands of adverse effects on record with the FDA include serious infections, severe hemorrhaging, and the rupture of previously undiscovered ectopic pregnancies. Mifepristone is used in combination with misoprusto, a prostaglandin, to cause an abortion. Mifepristone blocks progesterone, leading to the death of the unborn baby, while the second drug, misoprostol, causes powerful, painful uterine contractions to expel the dead or dying baby. The FDA's Revised Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS, for Mifeprex would require that the drug only be dispensed by pharmacies that have completed certification, and only those pharmacies, once certified, could dispense the drug prescribed by certified prescribers who have pledged to follow FDA guidelines regarding the screening and counseling of patients to ensure they know the risks and dangers. And uh, this is something that we're following very closely. We continue to encourage you to contact uh, major pharmacies and ask them not to dispense the dangerous abortion pill for chemical abortions. And now to our guest. Missy Martinez-Stone is a truth teller and advocate for women. She is the CEO of Reprotection, which investigates the abortion industry in order to bring dangerous violations of the law to light. Welcome, Missy. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're glad to have you. Remel, do you want to start out the questioning? Yes. Nasi, let's start with the the organization that you had. What is reproduction and the work that you do there? Yeah, so Reprotection is a unique organization that helps pro-life advocates shut down the abortion facilities in their communities. So a few years ago, some national leaders identified that there was a gap between what laws were being passed on a state level and then what was actually being enforced by those agencies responsible. And so even though states had really good laws on the books, not just pro-life laws, not just abortion regulations, but general medical regulations and building codes, things like that, depending on who was responsible uh, for oversight, uh, those laws weren't being enforced properly and leaving the abortion industry essentially unregulated. And that created a really dangerous uh, situation for women who are vulnerable, who are scared, who are in this time of confusion. They were going into these facilities uh, and being harmed by these unregulated facilities. So reprotection was started to bridge that gap between what laws are on the books, who is responsible, and how is this facility operating, um, and how, how can we hold them accountable? Now, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, how has your work changed, and what challenges have you faced? Yeah. Um, Everybody was was messaging me the day that decision came out, which it was so exciting, you know, absolutely so exciting. Uh, but they were like, do you still have a job? Do you still have work to do? And I said, yes, not only do we have work to do, now we have more work to do uh, because we were already working on a state level. We had already identified the lack of enforcement of laws that already existed. And so now with the Dobbs decision overturned, there's more laws that states can pass. There's greater restrictions that um, are being put into place. And so it just created more cases for us because uh, now states can pass more restrictive uh, regulations. And so we have to go in now and ensure every law is being enforced properly. So we got busier. Um, and I know a lot of pro-lifers feel the same way that although the the reversal of Roe versus Wade, um, the that that is a massive victory, but it did not change our work much on the day to day. If anything, a lot of us just got busier because now we are working and focusing on the state um, solely on this on the state front. So what are some common violations of law by the abortion industry that you have come across in your line of work? Yeah. Yeah. So um, typically we we work under the assumption that the people that are working in the abortion industry, if you are OK with taking the life of the most innocent human, um, you are probably OK with bending administrative rules like there is a moral decay that is in uh, that happens to the people that work in this industry um, that they are just more comfortable with with budging lines. Um, and so we see a lot of patient privacy violations. So HIPAA, um, we get stories of abortionists putting multiple women in a room at the same time to distribute the abortion pill, um, disposing of records improperly, leaving patient records at buildings when they when they move out of them. Um, there's just a general lack of care for patient privacy. And that is a, uh, a violation that is illegal. 
Um, we've also seen a lot with, with facilities that predominantly focus on, on chemical abortions, on abortion pills. Uh, they misread ultrasounds, will date the baby younger than it, than it actually is so that they can distribute the abortion pills. Um, and then just general uh, medical negligence, you know, not, not monitoring vitals, being rude, handling people roughly, not um, listening to the patient if they change their mind. And we've had women who have rescinded their consent and the abortion say, it's too late. No, we're going to, you know, they do it anyway. Like that is, those are violations of, of ethical uh, medical standards. And so um, typically it has to do with how is the woman being cared for in this process? Um, you know, from the minute she walks into that facility, has she been informed properly of what's going to happen? How did they treat her? And then what did recovery look like? And, and in that process, there's, there's typically a lot of violations. And what drew you into this line of work? <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, it's a really unique thing to be doing. You know, when I started my pro-life career, gosh, over a decade ago, I had no idea this is where I would end up. But um, I was actually with Student for Life of America for about six years and during the early days helped build out their entire student outreach program. And um, I realized then I'm, I'm not an activist and, and that's fine. You know, I everybody has their gifts, but I, I am more comfortable being kind of more behind the scenes. I love research. I love um, policy. I got my degree in political science. Um, and when I stepped away from Students for Life, I was really discerning, like, what is my, I know I want to be in pro-life work. I know this is what I want to dedicate my life to, but what does that look like for my gifts? And just so happens that the idea of reprotection was brewing. They were having, you know, people that I knew were in these conversations and they said, we need somebody that is a researcher, that's an administrator, that's a strategic thinker. And they basically listed my resume. And I said, that's me. I do. I do all of those things. Um, and so they tapped me on the shoulder to start Reprotection to work with um, the people who had the original idea and get it off the ground. But it really, it really uh, speaks to um, my more introverted brain. I kind of joke and say, like, calling all pro-life introverts. This is a group of us that want to be behind the scenes, that love reading, that love digging and searching and research. And it's very much like paralegal um, kind of legislative aid work. And so the people that like that stuff, like what we do. So, um, I, but long story short, basically divine intervention is what got me here. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a very unique niche you found yourself in, uh, yeah. with regards to the pro-life movement. Um, so, um, you, you, you share that you are a pro-lifer. So was there any case in particular that has had a greater impact on your convictions as a pro-lifer, especially after you started this job? Yeah, I don't know if there's a specific case because, I mean, we, without going into too much detail, the, the stories that we hear are really horrific. I mean, the treatment that these women experience is just devastating. And the thing I find myself really thinking about more often is that the, the hypocrisy of the abortion industry that is saying, 
we empower, they're trying, they're doing it in the name of empowering women, giving women this choice, you know, whatever that, that whole message that somehow, um, having, having completely unregulated, uh, access to abortion is somehow empowering to women that we don't need to monitor it at all. There no rules apply. Now we're dealing with chemical abortions coming in from other countries and they're not seeing doctors and the abortion industry is perpetuating this, these, this behavior. Um, but the, the in, in the name of empowering and helping women, but the people that are bearing the brunt of the consequences of this behavior are the women themselves. They are the ones that are having complications. They are ones that are emotionally traumatized. Um, they are the ones that uh, are being harmed the most, um, you know, besides the, the child, but these women that they are supposedly empowering are actually the ones that they are harming. And that, as I have gotten more involved in this work, I've heard more cases that just becomes clearer and clearer and clearer is that the abortion industry has this completely backwards, that they think unregulated abortion, abortion um, at all times, for whatever reason, taxpayer funded, uh, is not empowering women, it's actually harming the people that they are saying that they are serving. And what's one thing that gets you going every day? Is it that knowledge yeah. that you are helping women? Yeah. Yeah. I I love what we do because, you know, sometimes, you know, when, when people ask me what I do, um, I'm not always talking to a, a staunchly pro-life person. But if I, when I explain what I do, even if they are not themselves pro-life, they can get behind what I'm doing. Because I say, I am shutting down dangerous medical practitioners, like the people that I am having investigating and shutting down should not be practicing medicine, period. And everybody can get behind that. And so I see it very much as we are providing a public service to these to these communities of shutting down dangerous practitioners, dangerous facilities that are causing harm. Um, and, and like I said, to women who are already in such a vulnerable position and um, that to me just feels so, uh, em empowering to me, like feels so right to be able to step in and say, you cannot harm these people. Like you will be held accountable. My, my husband jokes and says I have a, a justice so meter, you know? And so when I feel like there's a big injustice, you know, I'm, my reaction is very strong. Um, and so I, I just get excited to be able to advocate for these women, to advocate for the safety of women and children in these communities. Wow, that is really inspiring. Um, you, I believe your office is based out of Kentucky? Yeah, so I just happen to live in Louisville. Um, we are a national organization. We have cases all over the country. You know, in today's day and age, anybody can work from anywhere. And so our team is spread out all over the country. I just happen to live in Louisville, Kentucky. I love it so much. This is where my um, where we have chosen to build a home. But uh, we are a national organization and have cases everywhere. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about how, if they come across any violations, how do they, uh, what is the process of bringing that up? Yeah. Uh, where can they report it? And uh, yeah, um, yeah, how can we reach you? Or yeah. do we have affiliates? Yeah, so we are the official reporting group for Sidewalk Advocates for Life for the national group. We've formed a partnership with them where if a sidewalk advocate that is affiliated with that program calls them, they say, you call reprotection. Um, same with Heartbeat International. So Heartbeat International is one of the largest pregnancy 
center affiliation uh, groups. And so they have the same uh, protocol. You call reprotection uh, when there's a violation. So we, and same with support after abortion and, and the, a number. So we have actually developed um, partnerships with these organizations that serve the people who are on the front lines. Like if you want to know what's going on at the abortion facility, you call the sidewalk advocates and you call the pregnancy centers because they know they're either right next door, they're right in front, they're talking to the clients that have been in. So they have heard the stories. They are talking to these clients um, who have had bad experiences. And so we are working really hard. We have a training um, with Heartbeat International. We're developing one for sidewalk advocates now on how do you identify these violations? How do you document them appropriately? How do you honor patient privacy in the process? Like, what do you need to report? Um, and so we're training them to be better advocates so that they can see and hear what's going on and get that information to us. So if you're a part of that group already, then you've got a straight line in. But we also have a form on our website where you go to reprotection.org. There's a big orange button at the top that says report a violation. And so if you are somebody who, again, is out on the sidewalk serving um, those women or is at the pregnancy center and is talking to a client and she said something and you go, that doesn't sound right. You know, that sounds like it should not have happened to you. You can go right on our website, reprotection.org, report a violation, and you can put that information in. I know here in Harrisburg, we had a long-standing abortion facility that was inspected after we passed a uh, special law regarding um, safety and health uh, protections for women who go to abortion facilities. And after an inspection, Posted on the health department website was a report that had 44 pages worth of health and safety violations. So we then contacted a local member of the media um, who actually specialized in restaurant inspection reports. And she so she was very much interested in the inspection. She did a report and then um, some members of the Pennsylvania State Senate wrote a letter to the Department of Health and said, why aren't you closing down this facility? Do you run into those situations where there are just tons of violations by a center and yet it's still operating? I had a I had an, an interesting conversation. I can't say with who, um, but with a with a very high up government official in a certain state. And I was explaining to her if the abortion industry was was inspected like the restaurant industry, they would all be closed. They would all be closed. I said, you, the health department goes in and inspects these restaurants. And when they uh, are are seen as a risk to public safety, they are shut down. If the, if the, if the inspector goes in and they give them a plan of correction, if the restaurant does not correct that behavior, they are shut down. That same philosophy is not applied to these abortion facilities. And we have called out the, that hypocrisy. And so we're working with some legislators in, in a couple of states to say, because um, there, there is a there's a pattern. Technically, the law only says you have to submit a plan of correction. If they have a plan of correction, check the health department's done their job. They don't ever have to show proof that it was actually corrected or that there was a, a systemic change there's a cultural change that's going to correct this behavior. Um, and so they just fail and fail and fail every year. They just keep failing and failing and failing. And at what point do you, do you step in and actually shut them down? So we're actually pushing 
a couple states to change their inspection language to say, if you fail so many times in a row, uh, then you lose your license. Um, there needs to be that level of accountability that you're not allowed to just fail, submit a plan of correction, and then not actually correct any of the behavior. Um, and so we are trying to address that as it comes up um, it, by each state. But yeah, it, it is fairly common that they will do the inspection. They, they follow the letter of the law. So technically they did what they were supposed to do, but they miss the spirit of it. And that is to, sh- to keep dangerous facilities from operating. Wow. That is uncommon knowledge. <laughs> Let me see. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is crazy. Once knowledge. you get into it and you, and you, and you see it, it's, it's, it's hard to unsee. I mean, we have uncovered. So like I said, some pretty horrific, um, situations. And a lot of them could have been avoided if the agencies had stepped in. I mean, Pennsylvania has the perfect example. You, I don't need to tell you guys. Um, you know, the the Pennsylvania Health Health Department director said, don't inspect Kermit Gosnell because he's it's an abortion facility. That is very much uh, the attitude of a lot of these agencies is they don't want to touch it because it's abortion. They don't want to be seen as the, the group that's restricting abortion rights. And so they leave these facilities uh, unregulated on purpose. And for those who might not remember or might not have been around, Kermit Gosnell was an abortionist in West Philadelphia who was initially accused by a grand jury of causing the deaths of possibly hundreds, if not thousands of newborn babies and causing the deaths of their mothers. And it was a house of horrors facility. And in the end, um, he he was brought to justice, um, but the grand jury um, wasn't able to uh, have him convicted of all of the charges that could have been brought against him because he destroyed so many records. So he was ultimately found guilty of murdering three newborn babies and causing the death of a female immigrant patient, Karnamaya Mangar. And I'm sure that um, her her legacy lives on in the work that you do, Missy, to try to protect other women from harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the abortion industry wants to tell you that's the exception, not the rule. And we have found the opposite, that the exception is actually a place, an abortion facility that's run up to code. We, we rarely see those facilities. Um, the ones, the calls that we get are, these are bad actors. This facility is dirty. Uh, they do not care about the patients. They just want them in and out and they want their money. Um, and it is it is a devastating trend that we have to address. Absolutely. Missy Martinez-Stone, CEO of Reprotection, thank you so very much for being on the program today. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Um, if you guys have any other questions, you can go to reprotection.org, you know, come alongside what we're doing. Uh, help support us so we can shut down more abortion facilities. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. Thank you for joining us today. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life.